All right, welcome back, everybody. We are here with a another episode, I think a special episode, and I want to say a special thanks to all of you, the, the ones listening and um, downloading this and, and sharing it with people. Uh, we're hoping this podcast helps you and helps many, many, many others uh, that maybe we can't reach even geographically. Uh, but again, thank you so much for uh, for being with us for these... 50 episodes. I can hardly believe it's been 50 episodes. Um, I think I might have to go back and recount just to <laughs> do, do a recount just to make sure. Um, however, this is the 50th episode and we are so thankful again to all of our listeners and the people who are, um, who are part of this community. Let's, let's grow this thing, share this like crazy. And, um, we also want to hear from you, podcast at breadbreakers.com. You can go to the Facebook page and um, and interact there, but really podcast at breadbreakers.com is a fantastic way to jump on there and give us um, questions and comments and things that we might be able to share and um, maybe even help guide some of the content. This is Your Life, God's Word. For those um, that already know, you can tune me out for the next 30 seconds or so, but those um, who might be new or just kind of coming into this, um, we are a, this is an episode, um, that's special, but this podcast in itself is also special. It is an attempt to take the word of God, the principles of the kingdom and apply them to our lives. So it's called your life, God's word, uh, to capture that. There are so many aspects of life, faith, family, community, right? Things that matter to us, things like our, our jobs, our children. And God's Word touches on every aspect of life that's, that's worth anything. And so I think it's important for people to remember that and to go to the Word of God to find direction. If we're looking for um, you know, direction in, in, in looking for a spouse, or, or maybe we're married and we've been married for th three decades, we're starting to have some marital problems. What are some things that scripture might, might say about this? Or we're raising children, or, you know, we're considering, um, ministry or, you know, trying to learn and grow and develop in God, how to please God and, you know, so many things. And that's what this podcast is about. That's the long version. Maybe that was longer than 30 seconds, but this is episode number 50. And in, in keeping with 50, we are going to dive into a, um, a, a kind of a, a, a deep discussion of Acts chapter 2. This is the, the day of Pentecost. So many people are familiar with it, um, mostly because of the, the Christian context of Pentecost, what happened on this particular day of Pentecost, but the day of, of Pentecost, right, that um, that was a Jewish festival, Feast of Weeks, and it was something that had been done for generations, but on this particular uh, time was when God first poured out the, uh, the Holy Spirit. It's called Pentecost because it, that means 50, and so that's why we're tying it into our 50th episode. Um, to, to lead into this, remember that at the end of the Gospels, Jesus, he, he is crucified, he dies, he's buried, he, he's risen again. On the cross, he said, it is finished. 
But but the it, right, his ministry, that portion, what he came to accomplish, right, all of that might have been finished. He he resurrected and instituted, right, the new a new age of God's um, interaction with man and the earth. But everything isn't wasn't completely finished. the The world didn't end. Uh, things kept going, and and at the end of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you find there's like a pointing towards something. Jesus, during his ministry, even talked about uh, things to come. Right, I on this rock in Matthew 16, I will build um, my church, and the the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we find over and over that he talks about these things to come after he's um, after he's ascended. And when we when we go to the scriptures in Acts chapter uh, Acts chapter one, we find that on one of these occasions, it says uh, in verse four, Acts one four. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have been, or whoops, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this gets back to, again, the end of the Gospels, Luke 24 in particular, go and wait for that promise of the Father, the promise that, uh, that, that God was going, there's something else coming. Remember in John 14, he talks about the comforter who's going to be coming. And, um, and so he, he reiterates that here. And so I think it's, it's important to remember the Gospels even have this critical, there's a climax at death, burial, resurrection. It's, it's a critical juncture. Um, but there is also a forward-looking thing that's coming. It, it's instituting something in, and so there's something forward-looking as well. He tells them that here, and then, of course, in verse 6, they, they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they, they weren't even really thinking correctly. They weren't, they're still thinking, you know, the Davidic kingdom, it's going to be like King David, man. We're going we're gonna to conquer the earth, destroy the Romans, reign supreme. And they were still thinking more in the physical, and, and Jesus uh, wasn't, wasn't really thinking about that. That's not what his concern was. His concern was the kingdom of God and how, how this, this um, was going to move forward. But I think we need to learn something from them. We need to learn a dose of humility so that we don't get to the point where we think we know everything. Like, our opinions are final, it's concrete, we know everything there is to know, we have every truth there is to have. I think we need to be careful. Um, we definitely need to put that line in the sand where God draws it. We need to put our stake in the sand where there's a stake that God wants there. Um, but we need to always be careful just in case our understanding even of where those stakes are supposed to be. Uh, what if it's off a little bit? Are we willing to move it and say, whoa, I want to I want to align with you, God. I didn't realize I was incorrect here. I'm going to change my view on things. I'm going to change the way I handle things. I'm going to change you know, my attitude toward things because your scripture actually says this. It actually teaches this. There are many times that we can get things, I'll say, wrong, even out of a sincere heart, but it is sincerely wrong. And so we need to give ourselves some grace and also have some humility to make sure that we are 
in the boat. I mean, these are men that walked with Jesus for years. They were, you know, they were witnesses, death, burial, resurrection, and still there was some thinking that they needed to get cleaned up. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Here's the, here's the clincher, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And of course, we have the we have the ascension. We have the angels saying, "Hey, go and do what he said." We've got the the rest of, of verse or chapter one, which you can go, of course, read for yourself. But we're going to dive into chapter two. Before we get into verse one, just just that power to be a witness, that power to go and be the ambassadors that Paul talks about in Corinthians. Right, we're ambassadors of Christ. Right, we're we're reconciling the world to Christ, right? He's in us, and we have this ministry of reconciliation. I think it's important that that we as believers have such a, a prime view of, of Scripture, of the Word, of all of this. We must have it. it that, that is the essential. You know, the Bible talks about the more sure word of prophecy. All Scripture is um, God-breathed, right? And it's sufficient, what does that mean? Sufficient. Well, the word of that the man of God may be what, perfect, complete, thoroughly furnished, thoroughly furnished in all good works. So, I mean, the word of God, the scriptures, um, are should be a just a huge way up there in the pinnacle of the Christian mind and heart. Um, but also, we need to not forget it, it is critically important to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Trying to walk around with just a Bible under our arm, it's good, but it's not good enough. We really need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. He did not say, you know, I'm giving you all understanding of all all revelation and all Scripture, and so go and win the world. He did say, you will receive the Spirit, which is power, and you will be my witnesses. So I think we need to make sure it's not either or. It's both and. We want to honor God in our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want the the mind to be there. We want that to be engaged. We want to study Scripture, as the Scriptures actually tell us to do. We want to know it, rightly divide it. Uh, but we also don't want to be so Scripture-oriented that we don't have the experience, that we don't have the power of the Spirit leading us, guiding us, helping us, pushing us. Um, and on the other side, again, we don't want just, just this experience and goosebumps and feeling um, and, and no, no solid uh, maturity, no balance, no rooted in truth. So we need both. Right? Didn't Jesus say, John 4, I'm looking for worshipers. What kind of worshipers? Not just any old worshipers, worshipers who worship in two things, spirit and truth. So here we go. Um, Chapter 2 of the book of Acts, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So some very interesting things. Um 
what what is all this with the, the wind and the fire? Um, you know, when you when you look back over the gospels, and I and I mentioned earlier about how there was like this this sense of something coming and different things. Um, it was John the Baptist, John the Baptist, that said that um, that you will be uh, that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. Let's go to let's see Matthew chapter three. See if I can figure out how to do this. Use this new Bible app here, Matthew three. In verse 11, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, who is he talking about? Obviously, he's talking about Jesus, but but he says that there's going to be this fire, this the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire. So in their minds, they're thinking about fire as it relates to the Holy Spirit. And I think that you can go back to the Old Testament and see where God um, is identified with fire, or God is a consuming fire in Deuteronomy. And, and again, the fire from heaven, right? I mean, with uh, with Elisha. Um, no, that's Elijah. <laughs> Mount Mount Carmel. Um, what is that? First Kings eighteen, I think it is. I mean, over and over you find that God is kind of pictured in this mode. And he says, the Holy Spirit and fire. And then when we, when we get to John uh, chapter 4, you... I am totally off here. John chapter 3. I'm like, John chapter 4? Wait, I'm missing it. False doctrine already. We're not even 20 minutes into the podcast. Um, John chapter 3, right? This is where Nicodemus and um, and uh, Jesus have their, you know, little secretive powwow uh, because Nicodemus being a... Um, being a member of the ruling council, right? He he was still kind of concerned about his position and, and and prestige and all that, so he came to Jesus secretly. Um, and and this is where we talk about being born again, born of water and of spirit, which of course ties into baptism, and the uh, and the spirit, which I guess we'll get to in, in later on in this uh breaking down of Acts chapter 2. So why don't we go ahead and, I guess, just read it here. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one can perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. So again, we we all know. I mean, we, you know, we know. We know. But a lot of them didn't care that he was from God. He was going against the tradition and the system and the religious order. So he, you know, he was an enemy. Uh, Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are, what? Born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. 
Uh, so Nicodemus is asking about being born again. He is not asking about being born the first time and then being born again. Jesus answers, and in his answer, he is talking about how to be born again, because that's what Nicodemus asked. That's what Jesus said. He said born again. Nicodemus asked about being born again, and then he answers how to be born again. I, some, I, I reiterate this because some people say when, when Jesus said you must be born of water and of spirit, that born of water is just born. That your your water birth, you're born. Um, it, it it's not a water birth; it's blood. <laughs> okay, so even that analogy just doesn't what. But anyway, he is talking about being born again. This is what he says: "Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit." Okay, water and Spirit. So born again, the born again experience. Check this out, verse six: Flesh gives birth to flesh. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Again, talking about born again. He's focusing on born again. He is not focused on being born. Um, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So he links being born of the spirit with wind and this the infilling or baptism of the holy spirit is also linked with fire and so these images have been conjured in their minds why were why are they conjured there because this is what god spoke to people um he he planted those images there for them so now when it's happening for the first time there is a sign Right, so these people know there's no. Now you might think, oh, they're sitting there, they're they're in God's will. How could they question? Human beings are so fickle. We are so able to have the most powerful things happen, and then it's like, well, I mean, did it really? Or but but is God really meaning this? Right? Look at the children of Israel. Perfect example. They come out of Egypt, and that generation had to die in the wilderness because what? Oh, we can go back. I mean, these are, these are the people that saw the plagues. They saw the water part. They saw them be destroyed. They get they got water from a rock. They had they were eating manna, right? They they all of these miraculous things, and yet they couldn't get out of their own minds. They couldn't, you know. And so again, I think we see here a perfect example of God giving a sort of sign that this is the thing. There is no other promise of the Father that's getting ready to happen. This is it. How do we know it's Holy Spirit? How do you know that, we're, that what's happening is the Holy Spirit? Fire and wind, okay? Sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house, right? They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separated, came on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues, which we find consistently through the book of Acts as people receive the Spirit. Uh, sometimes, I mean, here they, you know, they were they were there in the room, and it says they were filled with the Spirit. They spoke in tongues. Uh, later on in Acts eight, you uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't say exactly what happened, uh, but it does say that Simon was able to see. Well, first of all, they were able to know that these people did not receive the Spirit yet. If it was just an internal thing, that's impossible, okay? And and let me just say this. For all my brothers and sisters who are like I, 
very strong on sanctification and a life of there's fruit, there's process that that someone's repented and all this. However, okay, they, it it didn't say in Acts eight that they they watched them for five years and there was no evidence that uh, of the spirit at work in their lives, and so they figured they weren't filled with the spirit yet. Okay, we're talking hours, days, maybe. All right. And, they, and yet they knew these people are not filled with the Spirit. How did they know they weren't filled with the Spirit if it's just an internal thing and nobody can tell? Because through the Scriptures, it's not an internal thing only, and people can tell. Simon could tell when people... He, and this guy's not even a... This guy's a, a sorcerer wanting to give them money. He's like, I want to have this power, right? The guy wasn't even the right mindset. The guy's still not even truly repentant of his sin. He wants to make a little extra buck right? But he was able to tell when people finally got the Holy Spirit. What was it? What was the sign? How could they tell? It wasn't praising God. They had been doing that. It wasn't being filled with joy. They had been doing that. What was it? Well, in Acts 2, they spoke in tongues. In Acts 10, the Jewish believers did not believe the Gentiles were going to receive the Spirit, and it says they realized they received it when what? When they spoke with tongues. In Acts 19, what happens? They spoke with tongues when they received the Spirit. Consistently through the Bible, the sign, the visible sign that it that is um ap- it, 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 it's it's sort of the ultimate symbol. Okay? There are other things, right? But the the way they knew for sure that someone received the Spirit was they spoke in tongues. And when you get into the epistles, you don't see that that goes away. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 makes that very clear, and so um, it, it still happens today. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Can it get kooky? Can people get weird with it? Absolutely. Can people get kooky and weird with the Bible? Yes, they can. That doesn't mean we should throw all the Bibles away, and just because some people take the infilling of the Spirit and the beautiful um, speaking in tongues and the edification that happens from it, just because some people abuse it or misuse it or don't allow it to continue to change them and and become sanctified and what and righteous and all that doesn't mean we should throw out the good no it means we should teach people the good and throw out the bad so verse 5 right they spoke in tongues as the spirit enabled them actually back to verse 4 this is important the spirit enabled them we you don't seek tongues. You don't seek, I want to speak in tongues. You seek, I want the Spirit. When you get the Spirit, you will speak in tongues. That is the thing, right? If you're just looking for the outward sign, the outward symbol, then you may not have a good understanding of what it is doing inwardly, what it's supposed to lead to inwardly. That You might think, well, I spoke in tongues, I crossed the finish line. Wrong. You received the Spirit, and now the Spirit is supposed to bring forth fruit that is what's supposed to be happening. We're supposed to be sanctified. It's not just the experience, because if we live off of just the experience, we can end up like the children of Israel dying in the wilderness, God not going into the final promised land, <laughs> right? Why? Because, I mean, they had the experience. They saw all kinds of cool stuff. They experienced all kinds of great things. Uh, the experience is, is awesome, though, and it gets us sort of, I'll say, launched, but there needs to be then the process, God's a God of process, the process of the Spirit leading us, guiding us. We're walking in it. We're we're being changed by it. We're being sanctified and changed, right? But it's the Spirit that enables the speaking in tongues. 
We do the speaking. It's the enabling of the Spirit, and it's the Spirit that we seek after, not tongues, not just all the experience. I can't wait to get the goosebumps or whatever. That We are seeking, God, fill me with your Spirit. Verse 5, now there was staying at Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. So again, right, they're not up there just quietly, gently speaking, you know, oh Lord, we love you so much. Um, There were people who heard them in the room. They heard what was going on. There was noise, okay? And... They were bewildered. Why? Because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Okay, so lots in here, right? Obviously, people are perplexed. They don't know what's going on. That's going to happen. People are going, if people come to a a service and they don't understand the things of God, they don't understand... It's okay for people to be aplexed, <laughs> perplexed, or amazed, or have questions. What's going on? That's fine. We need to have answers. That's why Peter gets up and preaches the word to them, right? And gives scripture to them and, and uses his mind, not just his feelings and his, you know, and his utterances. He then uses his mind to be able to relate to them and preach to them and teach them and show them and make connections in the scripture and all that. We need both. We need both. It wasn't him up doing that that brought them in and had a great, great, you know, 3,000 people added. It was the experience that drew these people. What's going on? Of course, there's those that make fun. That's fine. There's always been. There's People have always uh, either misunderstood the things of God and, they're, and, and, you know, ridiculed or made fun or whatever. Some make fun and then start to realize this is real and turn and become an advent, you know, a, a, an, an ardent supporter of God, a, a, um, a, a convert to Christianity. This happens. People attack Christianity. Some people vehemently, like Paul, and then get converted. That's fine. People, that, that's going to happen. It's going, people are going to either going to misunderstand or they are going to fully understand and reject it because they don't want that. Okay? Those can happen. They, some people fully understand and reject it. Others don't understand and reject it. Some misunderstand and reject it, and we just need to be love, and we need to be light, and we need to not back down from the experience, and we need to not back down from the the scriptures and the teaching and the discipleship and all that either. So all these people hearing them in their own languages, so again, this kind of this is a supernatural thing. People are talking, and yet all you know, all these people are hearing what they're saying in their own language. So this is a miraculous thing. This is a very miraculous thing. The speakers don't know what they're saying, and there's nothing really to indicate that each speaker was speaking a different single language. The indication certainly seems to be that if a specific speaker was, if if Peter was saying something in tongues, and there's four people there, each of the four heard their own native 
language. So this wasn't even like a tongues interpretation thing where there's there's one language that's being heard. This is people speaking, and miraculously, whatever the language was of the hearer, they were hearing their own language. That's what it says. Um, now, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the nine. It's only nine in the morning. So, these these no n- nobody here is drunk. Why why would they think they're drunk if they're just sitting there or standing there stoically, expounding the word of God? The Lord is good. God is amazing. Here's a scripture for you. Uh, no, they were behaving in some way that made people think they were drunk. Now, if all of them didn't hear j- gibber, or we'll say gibberish, they didn't hear speaking in tongues, they heard their own languages. And so they just see a bunch of people sitting around, acting like normal, in conversation. Why would it draw any attention? Why would they think they were drunk? There was a supernatural experience people behaving in a way that made them think they were drunk. Now, I'm not saying things should be out of order. I'm not saying that, you know, church services should be chaotic, um, but they should also not be so rigid and religious that if someone were to walk by, they would never ask, oh my goodness, what's going on in there? They would go, ah, just a bunch of people having church. That is not how the church was birthed. Verse 16. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Verse 17, he goes back to the prophet. What did the prophet say? In the last days, letting us know that the last days clearly began at Pentecost. He's saying this is fulfillment of what Joel said. Joel talked about the last days. Okay? Therefore, the last days was being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. So, he's saying this is a fulfillment of that. This is a fulfillment of what's going on. They're asking what's going on. He is saying this is what's going on. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That is what is going on. But he goes a little further. Check this out. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the fulfillment. So, for all the people who think that, you know, every time the Bible says things about the the the, the uh, sun being darkened and the moon turning to blood, who thinks that that's a literal, a literal thing that happens. I'm not saying that one day it it couldn't be a literal thing. I'm saying that you need to search the scriptures because scripturally this has happened multiple times. So it's actually quite common for the 
<laughs> for the moon to turn to blood and the sun to go black as sackcloth. Okay? Scriptural language, though, the, this cataclysmic, um, apocalyptic language, a lot of times signifies a sort of changing of the guard, a, a, an, inst, an instituting sort of a new age or new, new rulers, right? When, when a specific kingdom was judged and that kingdom came to an end and a new kingdom arose, often this is the kind of language you'll find in the Old Testament about that event. So it wasn't that while they were there speaking in tongues and, and preaching to people that they looked up and the moon was blood, okay? It's apocalyptic language signifying a changing of the guard, a turning of the age. This is a new work that God is doing in the earth. Verse 22, and, and indeed it was, right? We know this. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Right, getting back to kind of what Nicodemus said. He, he's like, yeah, we know. <laughs> um, he goes on, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for, de for death to keep its hold on him. Now, they're asking what's going on, and he starts preaching Jesus, and he immediately goes to their sin. He immediately goes to, you killed the, the Messiah. He didn't scratch their back, fluff them up with you know, six, eight weeks of how awesome they are and how amazing you guys are. Come back next week for another great sermon about how great you guys are, and then we'll give you a little bit more, just a little bit more, a little small bites of cheese. That's not what he did. He said, Jesus is the man. Jesus is the one. You are the one. Now, he didn't have to say that. He could have just said Jesus. He could have just left the part about you are the ones who killed him out, right? But he specifically goes to this thing that needs to be addressed in their lives. And I think so often we as Christians want to, we want to be loving. You, you, we, we've got to be gentle and loving. I don't, I don't see any reason why Peter needed to be like, you know, have, a, have like veins coming out of his neck while he's saying this. I don't see any reason why he's got to be pounding. Ah, you guys are the ones. I don't, I don't see that he needs to be, you know, spitting and sweating on them or anything. He could very calmly be saying, you are the ones. You by Through wickedness and deceit, you are the ones who nailed Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to a cross. It's not that it needs to be mean or harsh. It can be passionate, sure, fine. But it doesn't need to be mean or harsh. But it does need to be addressed. I think too much of the time, too many times, the, the church is so trying not to, you know, trying to be gentle, trying to be love, that we end up being unloving. Because love doesn't leave someone in their sin. Love doesn't leave someone not even hearing the sort of the bad side of the good news, right? <laughs> like the there's good news, but the reason you need the good news is you're a sinner and you need to repent. And here's the good news. 
Jesus is there for you in grace and mercy. We just skip to the grace and mercy. And too often people are like, why do I need that? I'm a good person. Why do I want that? Why do I mean, why would I want to change my life drastically? I could just come here and feel good and cry a tear and raise my hands and, and, and leave and feel good about myself. That is not the message of the cross, and it is not how we are supposed to operate. He goes on in verse 25, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me up with joy in your presence. So here he is addressing immediately what they need to repent of, addressing some things that need to be taken care of, and then he's using Scripture. He's using Joel. He's using Psalm. He's using different places to tie this in and show them, show them in teaching, breaking this down, not just getting up and just believe the sign or just you go go with your feelings. Don't you feel the, the Holy Spirit in the atmosphere? There is a level of buying into the kingdom of God, buying into the gospel that needs to happen with our faculties, with our mind. Verse 29, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So again, he he does this, he hits them with it up front, then he talks to them about Jesus and how Jesus is the one that, that really was being prophesied about. He is the Messiah. He, he rose again. We all have witnessed that he rose again. And then he says, you have crucified the Lord and Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, when they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, they are not asking, what do we need to do to, uh, to bake a cake properly? They're not asking, what do we need to do to fix the, 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 the power windows in our car? How to join the Boy Scouts, right? They are asking very clearly. He has put it in no uncertain terms. You are sinners. You have killed the Messiah. His blood is on your hands. He was the Christ. What do we need to do? Notice that it says that they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles. If we go back to verse 14, it says that Peter stood up with the eleven. 
Now, some people will go and they'll take, you know, Matthew and Peter and they'll, they'll start to find these, 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 I'll say, um, conflicts within the scriptures. Well, I'm going to go with what this one said versus that. They were all there shoulder to shoulder in unity with what was being preached. They were all being asked, what do we need to do? So if the message that Peter is about to preach is somehow different or he got it wrong, why didn't anybody stand up? Why didn't anybody say, well, that's not correct? I'll tell you why. Because they all had the same insight. They had all received the same spirit. They all received the same understanding from Scripture that Jesus you know, gave them the revelation of things um, that he was saying and what, what needed to happen. So when Peter answers them, all of the apostles, and frankly, all of the 120 were there, and they were all in agreement. Here's what Peter said, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. What do we do for the forgiveness of our sins? Now, if I were to give that to a, uh, you know, seven or eight-year-old with basic reading comprehension, read this sentence. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. If I said, what do we need to do for the forgiveness of our sins? They would say, we need to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It is so easy. It is so plain. It is so basic. But so many denominational pollutions, I'll say, of the scriptures have gotten our minds contorted, have gotten our minds away from the simplicity of the gospel. Well, does he really mean this? Or what about that? Or what about so-and-so? Or do you really, is this really necessary? Or maybe this, is, this actually, is this actually salvation by works? Or what? If Jesus said to do it, if God says to do it and we do it, that is not work-based salvation. That is obedience to God. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. Work-based salvation, the kind that is wrong, that the Scripture teaches against, you know, uh, following the law, it is when you are trying to follow the law or legalism, right, when, when God did not say to do that to be saved. If God said, pray and be saved, that's how you're saved. If God said, repent and be saved, that's how you're saved. If God said, you need to be baptized to be saved, that's how you're saved. If God said you need to uh, twirl around, look up in the air, um, cross your fingers, and do a hopscotch to be saved, that's what it requires to be saved. God is the one who determines the parameters. And when we obey him in the parameters that he set, that is not works-based theology. That is not works-based salvation. That is not legalism. That is not going back to the law. It is obedience to Jesus, which predates law and predates anything. It goes back to the garden, obedience to God. It goes back to Abraham, obedience to God. It goes back to Moses, obedience to God. It wasn't works. Moses wasn't saved by works. The children of Israel weren't saved by works. Abraham wasn't saved by works. <laughs> it was all obedience to God, right? Abel's sacrifice was not works-based salvation. When you go to Hebrews 11, he's mentioned in the faith chapter. It wasn't, but but he did something. There was something that God had commanded to do, and so it was just faith. It was accounted as faith, even though it was action, right? Why isn't it legalism? Why isn't it keeping the law? Why is, because faith, okay, 
faith-based action that God is asking for is obedience. It's not work. It's not legalism. Okay? It is obedience. And so Peter said, here is what you need to do. He speaks the word of God. He is in unity with the other apostles. He's in unity with the hundred, with the full 120. When these men ask him what they need to do, he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Boom, that's it. That, then he says, for the promise, he goes into this promise and who it's for, which we'll, we'll go into, but that, that's it. He didn't say you need to do these 10 things. He didn't say, you, well, first, you, he said you need to repent, you need to be baptized, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. That's it. Then in verse 39, he says, well, let, let's, let's connect that. What did Jesus say in John 3? Born again. How? Water and spirit. Is this water and spirit? Is this water and spirit? Yes. Baptized, baptism isn't in water, obviously. Baptized in water, receiving the spirit. Born again. Born again. Amazing. Amazing. The connectivity of Scripture, if we'll just open our minds and let Scripture be Scripture, just speak for itself. Get all of the, the denominational handbooks out of it. Get all of the get all of the what, what so-and-so said, or, or, well, I read this book on the history of whatever. Let's just get back to the Bible and let the Bible speak for itself. It's so plain. It's so easy. A child with regular reading comprehension will get this so easily. It's only when we do what? When we start to insert, insert things or remove things that starts to muddy the water. So, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39. Oh, well, this is just for, for them. This is just for the Jews, or it's just for that group of Jews. Or, mm -mm, the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all. All whom the Lord our God will call. All whom the Lord our God will call. Is he calling you? Is he calling your neighbor? Is he calling your coworkers? Is Has he called the people at your assembly, at your church, at your fellowship? If they've been called, this promise is for them. What's the promise? The promise of being born again. The promise of being able to obey God and have our sins forgiven by repentance and baptism. The promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, Some people try to say, well, no, this was just for this, you know, this group. I'm not going to go into it fully here because we're focusing primarily on, on this, you know, Acts chapter two, and we're already we're already at forty seven minutes or something. Um, so but you can go check it out. This is supremely consistent all throughout the book of Acts. You go to Acts eight, baptism, infilling of the spirit, repentance. You go to Acts ten, same thing. You go to Acts nineteen, same thing. Where, where we find sort of the, 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 the total story of what went on and the things that happened in that process of coming to God, we find where people, they repented, they were baptized, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, quickly, I will mention, this ties with the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that. 1 Corinthians 15 actually lays it out and says the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection Jesus Christ. 
we actually follow in the footsteps of Christ in this process. Romans lets us know that repentance, right, turning away from sin, that we die to sin. Our death is a death to sin. Repentance is more than just, oh, I'm sorry. Oops. It is a true, I have died out to this thing. Baptism is our burial, according to both Colossians and Romans. And then the infilling of the Spirit is our new life. You can read Romans. You can look at Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, I think it is. Um, multiple places that talk about the Holy, Romans 8, uh, where it talks about the infilling of the Spirit being our, 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 our life, our new life. So, again, we, we see many, many parallels in the Scriptures that point back to this one verse where Peter lays it out. Okay, he lays it out, and he says it's for everyone. It's for it's for everyone. It's interesting. Again, in Acts one, he said you're going to go to Jerusalem, right? You're going to go to Judea and Samaria, which is right. That's where they go in, in chapter eight. But then he says the uttermost parts of the earth, everywhere. It's going to start in these places. It's going to expand out, but it's for everyone. And many of the apostles, they just couldn't get it through their thick skulls that he, when he said everyone, he meant everyone. When he said everywhere, he meant everywhere. They thought he meant every one of the Jews, everywhere that the Jews are, right? And that's not true. He meant everyone. So then when we go to, uh, we go into verse 40, it says, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message, what? Were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their numbers that day. 3,000 people. But they accepted what? The message. What's the message? The message is not so much Acts 2.38. That is part of the message. But the message is Christ. He preached Jesus to them. In preaching Jesus, he identified sin, called them out, hey, stop being sinners, give up your sin, okay? In preaching Jesus, he used scripture to tie things in. He, he, he kind of showed the gospel that he, he was dead, right? He was buried, and guess what? We're witnesses. He lives again, right? He preached the gospel to them. We need to be careful not to pole vault into Acts 2.38 with people that are not ready. They had asked, what do we need to do? People need to get to that point where they're ready to listen to us, where they're ready to obey the words of God, obey the scriptures. We need to not hurry and try to force things and cram things down people's throat. Who's, they're, not, they're not really ready. And, and what happens is it's just frustration or it's very easy for people to kind of fall in and fall out because they're not really ready. When they're ready and they have a desire for Jesus Christ, they believe the gospel, what must they do? This is what they must do. And so uh, he says, save, save yourselves. You've got 3,000 people added to their number. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Uh, these are the, we call them, at Bread Breakers here, we, we call them the the four pillars, but these are the things that we must continue in on a regular basis to be able to grow with God, to maintain that process of sanctification, um, to follow in God, to be true disciples, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, so we need to be in a place where we're connecting and we are either doing the teaching or we're, or we're receiving the teaching, or maybe a little of both. 
We need to be in fellowship one with another. That is that that uh, koinonia. That is that that Greek term koinonia. It, it is more than just like oh, we had a burger. It includes that, but it is more than that. It is a deep sense of community. We are family in Christ, um, and we want to enjoy each other's company and encourage one another and cry with one another and rejoice with one another. The breaking of bread. Now, um, some some scriptures specifically say communion, um, and others, you know, the breaking of bread. It was very common for them to go and they would break bread in each other's homes. This was a kind of they're just kind of we we again we go on both routes. Communion is 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 it's important to have those those kind of rituals and rites that we do that are scriptural, um, and that we do life together. That we are in each other's homes, we're in each other's lives. We're not just see you on Sunday, nice praying with you. Don't want to talk to you until next next time we're in a prayer meeting. That is not the Christian fellowship. We are breaking bread with one another and to prayer. So you got doctrine or teaching and prayer, right? Those pillars of growing in the spirit, growing each other, and then you have the sort of two in the middle there of the bond and cohesiveness of the church, because we are a body. We're supposed to be a family, a body, right? <laughs> um, and that's how it works. <coughs> so, uh, all the believers were, oh, sorry, verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So they really took that community seriously. They they looked after one another. They were family. There, there it wasn't a bunch of loafers looking for handouts, and it wasn't a bunch of greedy people, you know, looking to amass wealth and comfortable living um, off the backs of the you know the saints. <laughs> okay, it was people coming together in community, in community, um, not in socialism. Okay, not forced community. Let me just make that clear, all right? The early church were not socialists. Um, socialism is evil, so, uh, which um, we're going to do a podcast on that. Um, but socialism is evil because it is a forced community. And forced community is the same thing as like, you know, rape, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Between a husband and wife, beautiful, wonderful, um, uh, forced on somebody, sort of the same thing, is now evil, ugly, despicable, and wicked. Um, community is beautiful, and the church should aspire for that, and the church should do that. It is a should. The church should operate this way. But forcing it on people is wrong. It is evil. Um, so they were not socialists. They were Christians. Um, <clears throat> so they, they sold their property and possessions, gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So again, they were together. They did life together. They prayed together. They, they, they were in community together. It wasn't just we have church together and then we're peacing out, or we just kind of get together to hang out. And then you know, it, it was literally, it was communion amongst um, the brethren, and they met constantly. Temple courts, so public places, they met in homes, right? Uh, lots and lots and lots of getting together and just being community, uh, something that the church really needs uh, to, to wake up and realize it is a core tenet of the faith. It is a core tenet of the original church that that community was so strong and so um, so um, so loving 
um, so intimate, just, just that, that love for one another, that community for one another, real, true family, not, you know, the Simpsons broken family or family guy or one. <laughs> no, real, what family is supposed to be. That's what they were. They broke bread in their homes, had glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, and they had favor with people, right? Why? Well, Galatians gives some insight into that, right? That we should be good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. They, they were good. They, they sought peace. They were joyful. They weren't complainers, whiners, right? And they weren't, again, going out and, and telling everybody, like, you need to be, you know, contributing. You need to be. They, they weren't doing that. They were going out, sharing their faith, sharing Christ. Did they get persecuted? Yeah, because in sharing their faith and sharing Christ, there were times they're going to come across people who, unlike in verse 30. Uh, 6 and 37, where they were cut to the heart and they say, what do we need to do? It's people who were cut to the heart, like with uh, Stephen, later, a couple of chapters later on, and they stone him to death. <laughs> they weren't like, what do we need to do? They were like, we don't want to hear this. You're dead. Um, so they came up, there, were, there are people like that. They don't want to change. They don't want to be a part of this thing. They don't want to be want Jesus. They want to hold to their sin. They want to hold to their tradition or whatever reason. But this is the birth of the church. This is Acts chapter Two, this is Pentecost. This is the 50th episode, and that's why we went through Acts chapter 2 in detail. I love you guys. God bless you. Hope this has blessed you. Again, if you have questions, comments, anything like that, podcast at redbreakers.com. Share this with your friends. Share this with people that may not know this. Maybe people that don't go through the book of Acts very often in their church because. Well, frankly, a lot of churches avoid it because you're going to get into some material that's like, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we believe this? Why don't we <laughs> why don't we teach differently? So maybe this is a good opportunity. Share this with somebody. You know, you know, hit that like button on on YouTube. Follow us on YouTube so you can get more videos. We love you. God bless you. And hopefully we'll catch you on episode 51. <laughs>